Welcome to this episode of the 74 and West Exclusives Podcast. This week, we are demystifying ESG, specifically the G. It's an acronym you're probably familiar with if you're in the financial space. However, even if you are, we're going to go deeper. Our guest this week is an expert in ESG, especially the G, and he's got an absolutely incredible story to tell, including his brush with Bernie Madoff. So, with that in mind, let's get right to it. Our guest is Luke Dixon. I'm an independent consultant working in London in the UK, advising investment managers and asset owners on a range of financial services issues, including uh, ESG in and around manager selection and portfolio construction for uh, high net worth and institutional investors. ESG, a lot of people have at least heard the acronym. Some people probably uh, feel they have a you know, fairly decent, broad understanding of what ESG is. But I'd like to ask you to define what ESG means, especially because I think this is something that's maybe evolved a little bit over time. But if you can go ahead and just, what is ESG? Well, apart from the obvious that it stands for environmental, social, and governance concerns, I think at its core, it's about making your money do good as well as make uh, make a return on your investment. I think that's really at its at its core. And that goes deep into how companies manage their affairs, meaning how are they governed? How are they managing their supply chains? Are they ensuring that employees are treated well, that companies within their supply chain aren't polluting in the environment? Um, issues like that. So you've got you know, a whole broad range of subjects which are covered, such as climate change and carbon emissions, water scarcity, waste management, pollution mitigation, all on the environmental side. And in terms of so social issues, so the S in the ESG, these are issues such as you know, workplace standards, diversity, uh, product safety, even data protection which is something that um, uh, directors and companies are very concerned about in this day and age. Um, and governance really relates to how, how companies are managed, the structure of their boards, issues such as executive pay, uh, policies on bribery, uh, sustainability, um, and diversity comes up again when one thinks about the composition of, of boards. SRI was a term that uh, was sort of all the rage for a while, socially responsible investing. Is that distinct from ESG or is SRI a part of ESG? Is Are they merely synonyms? Tell me about that. They're very close cousins, I think is probably the best way to put it. Um, socially responsible investment is, I guess, just a little less well-defined as ESG is. As I mentioned a moment ago, ESG has a lot of fairly clear-cut criteria where I think SRI was just a little bit vague and ambiguous. It is still used, for sure. Uh, one of my former employers dropped the S and simply referred to it as responsible investment, not wanting to get into kind of the discussions around whose, whose ethics are being applied to your investment selection. And that's where I think the, the S tended to come from in the original SRI um, 
uh, understanding. Whereas environmental, social, and government governance, ethics is captured in there, but it's it's kind of in the background. It's subordinate to tackling head-on issues of environment um, and 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 social concerns around around your people and how they're treated, people within the supply chain and the communities that are impacted by a company's operations. So that that brings up another really good point about um, you know SRI is a little bit a little bit ambiguous. Uh, ESG has more defined criteria. Who sets that criteria? Is there a standard? Yeah, that's a very good question, and I think I think in some well, in many cases, it's it's both defined in by individual companies and and investors. So they've got their own description if you will, of what ESG or SRI means to them. But there are various bodies out there now, associations of investors, for example, that that have, I guess, better defined what these things mean and what considerations board directors, pension trustees should be taking into consideration as they think about applying SRI and ESG principles to the way that they govern their activities. So, you know, the UNPRI, for example, which was introduced in 2006, these are involuntary, compliant, explain type guidelines which address ESG issues. So the UNPRI, which is now 15 years old, I think really goes a long way to defining what ESG and SRI are. And, and obviously this had been a huge take up amongst investment firms and companies for the UN principles of responsible investment since their introduction. You're obviously quite knowledgeable about ESG. Um, how long have you been doing work in this world, in this ESG world? I've been, I guess I've been interested in ESG issues since before I understood really what ESG meant. Um, and my interest actually developed initially with the G in ESG, um, which was which is governance, and it related to work that I was doing, researching offshore funds twenty years ago, and reviewing their fund documents and um, and seeing the very liberal GP friendly clauses that were contained in those documents, and seeing the same names appearing as directors across multiple funds. And it, it had me asking questions about who are these individuals who have this important role to play as directors of these offshore companies? How do they have the capacity to adequately oversee the operations of such a large number of companies pursuing a very diverse range of strategies and asset classes? And, and I began asking questions of my colleagues uh, and just digging into it a little bit more to understand what the the roles and the obligations were of of the independent or so-called independent directors of offshore fund companies. So that's really where it started for me, which was thinking about that safeguarding role that directors play in protecting the interest of investors in offshore funds. Did this make you sort of a controversial figure? Uh... I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing, like, you know, I'm taking note of this thing. I'm looking at the fine print. I, I'm asking questions. Did, did, did that make you, did people kind of, did that make you a controversial figure, I guess? I guess in short, it did. 
certainly in time. I think I think what it did do was was highlight to my employers at the time that I was a pretty detail focused individual and I was prepared to ask questions and and I think there was a lot of people operating in this industry at the time that simply accepted the status quo for what it was and didn't bother asking the questions. Maybe they spent much more of their time thinking about the investment strategy and the securities and, and what markets were being traded. And, and I was doing all of that, but the bigger picture wasn't lost on me that these individuals that are serving on the board have a really important oversight role to play. And, and this is 20 odd years ago when the amount of information that you could get out of, um, you know, a hedge fund manager or a private equity manager was really very poor. And, you know, the more that investors seem to push to get more transparency, the, the stronger the pushback they seem to get from their managers, certainly the larger ones. And so there was a real reluctance to ask, I think, direct, uncomfortable questions 20 years ago. And I was prepared to ask the questions. So, um, yes, eventually it became uncomfortable. If I was to fast forward 10 years, the work that I began doing at the university superannuation scheme, which had a very well-resourced and well sort of I guess the found, its foundations in responsible investment were well established. And so, you know, I had kindred spirits in the broader team that were interested in these issues too. And so I was able to, you know, have a bit of a soapbox to talk about the, the challenges, the troubles, the, the potential risks that were present in poorly governed offshore funds. Let me ask you this. There is a little bit of an irony right here. Um, you probably know where I'm about to go, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Uh, you know, you're talking about ethics and governance. Um, this has been your, your mission for, for uh, you know, 20 years or so. Uh, but when you somehow your name ends up getting associated with Bernie Madoff, is that right? Can you tell me a little bit about that story and sort of clear up this whole ridiculousness? <laughs> Sure. Um, Bernie Madoff. Um, yeah, what a horrendous story and a stain on on our industry. Anytime anyone brings up Bernie Madoff and says that, you know, he he's he's a, a hedge fund manager that that went wrong. I, I like to correct people pretty quickly. He was never a hedge fund manager. Um, he was always a con man and con artists are at work in in any industry. Um it happens that hedge funds are an attractive place for con artists to operate because of the history of opacity. Uh, managers want to hide behind their proprietary secrets and, and, and that gives them, them a, a cloak that they can cover themselves with. And it appears to be more legitimate perhaps when, uh, when that cloak is, uh, is, is covering up activities in the financial world. So, uh, so for some clarity, Bernie was, was never a hedge fund manager. He was always a con artist. Um, I joined JP Morgan in 2007, having only ever heard his name, which was slightly embarrassing at the time because he'd been around for a long time and, and clearly a lot of people were invested in feeder funds, which purported to invest with him. 
Um, but none of my previous employers, and I'd been at, by that point, I'd been at three different funds of hedge funds before I joined JP Morgan. And although I'd heard his name, none of them had been invested with him. And so I didn't know that much about him. And when I sat down for my first day on the job at JP Morgan in September 2007, where I'd been hired to set up and run a due diligence function on the trading desk for an exotics and hybrids business where we did structured products on hedge funds, um, my role was to assess the risk in hedge funds. And before I even sat down at my desk that first day, one of my bosses put a, a thin envelope on the desk and asked me to read it over and tell me what I thought. And it didn't take long. There was only a few bits of paper in this in this folder. And it was Bernie Madoff, and there was very little in there. And I simply said to my boss, I have a mantra, and it's to know what you own and size it appropriately. And I said to him, there's nothing much in here. So I, I can't tell you much about the strategy or its risks or even you know beyond Bernie Madoff, the people involved. So my advice is that we should have no exposure to this. And I didn't know any of the history at that point. I only came to learn later that the bank had five or six hundred million in exposure to Madoff feeder vehicles um, through its structured products business, where clients had requested that we provide additional leverage so they could juice up the returns, or we would provide some kind of option-like structure to get them their exposure to a Madoff feeder vehicle. Um, from that day forward, so from the day that I joined, we did not add to our Madoff exposure, um, which is important because the bank had some. We never added to it while I was there. Um, when we were asked, if you will, to acquire Bear Stearns in March of 2008, we inherited some additional Madoff exposure through that transaction, um, but we never actively added to our Madoff exposure. But unfortunately, we weren't empowered to take it off the books. But it always sat there uncomfortably with, with our risk managers uh, and with my line manager because it was legacy exposure that had been put on under different management. Um, and it wasn't until Lehman went under in 2008 that for all intents and purposes, you know, your credit risk officers rose, uh, you know, to the dominant position. They were in the ascendancy within the bank and we were asked to remove you know, all of our risk as quickly as we could and to start with the riskiest positions first. And the Madoff exposure that we had, I mean, remembering back to September 2008, markets were all over the price. Uh, prices for bonds had collapsed, equity markets had collapsed, there were no bids on convertible bonds. So the market was uh, completely uh, in, in, in mayhem. And our structured products at JP Morgan had, you know, on the order of 30 different clauses, which would allow us to exit from our derivative contract. And every one of those across a combined book between JP Morgan and the Bear Stearns business that we acquired, that combined book of about 20 billion, the only contracts, the derivative contracts, which did not trigger at least one clause 
because of the, the market action were those that referenced a Madoff feeder fund. But notwithstanding that, they were the first ones that we that we exited. Um, and the way a structured product works is you, you write a derivative to a counterparty promising them to deliver the return stream of a reference asset. And the way that our desk worked is we would fully hedge that exposure. We weren't a risk-taking desk. So if we promised to deliver Madoff returns to client X, then we would write that derivative contract and we would turn around and invest off of our balance sheet to acquire exposure in that underlying asset. So what we did on the back of that edict from, from our credit risk people to de-risk our portfolio was we, we sold out of our Madoff exposure in October of 2008. But at the same time, we couldn't actually cancel the derivative contract. So for all intents and purposes, we were actually short of Madoff between between sort of November and when he revealed himself uh, as a fraud in December of 2008. So for a period of about six weeks, we were short Madoff. Um, and it's really that that drew the attention of the Madoff liquidators after the fact that we were that we were short. Um, and within JP Morgan more broadly, the, the commercial bank served as a banker to Madoff Securities. Um, and, and we had other dealings with him at different parts of the bank. But our trading desk in particular drew attention because we were we were short Madoff prior to um, his fraud being exposed. You're taking a, a hedging position to you're hedging the position to reduce risk, but but sort of the appearances when you step back, it looks like oh you were short this, so you must have known this thing was a house of cards and it was going to fall apart. Is that is that sort of what the perception was the, the the false perception was? Yes, that was that was the narrative that the liquidator pursued. I mean, for fairly obvious reasons, he was trying to get the biggest recovery he could for victims of Madoff's fraud and. And obviously, J.P. Morgan, you know, is a big balance sheet, and therefore was a big target. And if they could paint us as 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 knowledgeable, as complicit, then then they could go after J.P. Morgan in a, in a big way. Um, I think the the facts bore out that we did not have knowledge that he was a fraud. We we had concerns that we didn't know enough about his activities, but we certainly didn't know that he was a fraud. And when we were asked to, to de-risk our book, it was a significant exposure. And we decided that that was one of the first exposures that we needed to, uh, to get rid of. I, th again, I used this word earlier. Th there's such irony in this, right? Because your career, I mean, and a big part of what it sounds like is your at least professional passion is the G in ESG. And Bernie Madoff is sort of the anti-G, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes and yeah you're you're not wrong um you know there was only there's only certain things you have control over in your professional life and you know i'm very proud of the work that my colleagues and i did during the two years that i was at jp morgan I mean, the business fundamentally changed uh after uh after bear stearns really but uh, certainly after lehman went and um and madoff was exposed as a fraud the business that i was hired into fundamentally changed in the past strong governance good independent good governance 
would have been perceived as being sort of in conflict or at odds with the investment manager and and it would be seen as a as a burden is that correct and is that still the case now it's absolutely correct i think that was the pervasive attitude um 20 years ago even even 10 years ago i mean post madoff i had some surprising conversations with some big asset owners who had you know significant investments in 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 offshore funds who didn't take the governance issue as seriously as certainly I felt that they they should have. Um, and the managers when setting up, you're setting up an offshore vehicle, even today, costs hundreds, if not millions of dollars, crazy amounts of money to establish, you know, an offshore company, get the legal documents written, and uh, and then staff your, your board. And, and an area where I guess they felt they could cut costs were on the governance side. So they would put two of their own people on the board and they'd hire one individual from, for example, a Cayman offshore corporate services firm for $5,000 a year to serve as the independent and provide some company secretarial services to the board. Um, and that was a very typical fund structure. I think certainly in light of Madoff and some of the other scandals that plagued the hedge fund industry during the 2000s um, and through efforts such as ours at USS, but some other significant asset owners um, made managers understand that it was a meaningful false economy for investors and ultimately for the manager to have poor governance, to have an inadequate number of, of directors, to have poorly, poorly equipped directors and to have directors who in some cases served on hundreds and hundreds of boards and wouldn't really have had the capacity in a stressful environment to pay close attention to the the decisions managers were making which they were asked to, to sign off on. How much has the perception changed and also in real terms how much has it changed this uh the viability, the you know, the compromise, and all that. T tell me about that. Right. I well, I think attitudes have changed a lot. It was it was talked about, I guess, in kind of more hushed tones. Fifteen years ago, it was a bit niche. There was certainly a perception that you you would, if you pursued responsible investment or socially responsible investment or ESG, you were likely compromising investment performance. And for a lot of people, that put them off. And for a minority, that, that, still, that still raises questions today, although there's a growing body of empirical evidence that suggests that, in fact, pursuing um, you know, better governed companies, companies that are concerned about the welfare of their employees and, uh, and communities down their supply chain um, and, and you know, are doing good with respect to the environment are actually better long-term investments. Uh, and I think the, the, the theory around that now is very sound as well. But most importantly for anyone, <clears throat> pardon me, that remains skeptical is that the performance of ESG funds, particularly over the course of the past 12 to 18 months when markets went through a, you know, a pretty horrendous period when COVID lockdowns started to bite, the performance of ESG funds has, um, they've been better than, than the general market has. So the evidence is there now that you can both do good with your investments and make money, if not even outperform. 
And maybe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in many ways, as more and more people pursue investments in companies that are making the right decisions around the environment and how they treat their people. And they're taking, you know, internal governance matters much more seriously and thinking longer term about their investment decisions that they, those are ultimately going to be better investments in the long term. Yeah, I mean, fund managers must be, they must be far more willing to embrace ESG now because it should be seen as a, as a benefit. It should be seen as attractive, right? To the point where sometimes I get concerned about greenwashing. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if, do you ever see any of that happening in the ESG world? The short answer is yes. I think it's, there's been such a momentum shift from, as I say, as you said, it, it being fairly niche 20 years ago to now, if you're, if you're not proactively discussing how your company is tackling climate change, how it's working towards net zero, how it's trying to diversify its workforce and its board, promote more, more women and visible minorities, etc., then you're going to get screened out. And in, in, in searches, um, you know, whether you're a, a corporate and you're looking to raise capital um, from, from investors or, or from investment managers, or if you're ultimately an asset owner looking to allocate capital to managers, you want to see that a manager has policies in place to address these issues and in particular issues that are of concern to you. And, and that has pushed many into what some call greenwashing. And I think there's pretty there's two schools of thought on greenwashing. There, there's some obviously that say greenwashing is a terrible thing. Um, it's pulling the wool over people's eyes, um, and and you know it's really not. People aren't those that are greenwashing. Their their policies and practices aren't effective. There's another school of thoughts that says, well, at least at least they they are washing. In some respects, right, even if they're not ready yet to fully implement and integrate ESG policies and practices, they they're making all the noises and the hope is that they will catch up. So, you know, you could find yourself on 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 one side or other of, of those. I think those that are most concerned about greenwashing are are the investment managers that, you know, are maybe really applying these policies and practices and want to distinguish themselves and are concerned that their competitors are saying they're doing these things when in practice they're not. Um, it's down to, to investors, those that are making the allocation decisions, to dig deep, to ask the right questions, and to determine who is actually practicing what they preach and who isn't. And, um, and eventually, it, it's, it's the whole movement is, is building and those that are greenwashing today won't be greenwashing for much longer. You had mentioned, I think it, I, I got the feeling this was a little bit more of your own personal insight. Um, there was a fascinating point that you brought up, or at least theory, which is that there has been a perfect storm of circumstances, maybe, that have helped ESG be taken even more seriously. Um, to be brought a little bit more into the mainstream um, that 
it did not necessarily, this isn't, was not necessarily an eventuality, but there was some things that were happening in the market itself, uh, in the economy that made it possible for this to happen. Yeah, I've, I've thought, I've wondered, I guess is the better way to put it for some time, whether the whole ESG movement would have gained as much momentum and as strong a following if, if expected returns, if, if interest rates had, had been sort of more normal. You know, we've now got a generation of people who think, who think LIBOR uh, or its equivalent Fed funds rate you know, it, it's normally around 25 basis points. When in reality, you know, although the, the average has obviously come down, it's been severely impacted and pushed lower by by the markets post, post-global financial crisis. But not that long ago, LIBOR was sort of five odd percent. That was kind of normal. Um, and, you know, at a time when there was a perception that doing right with your capital, pursuing RI, SRI, ESG principles in how you chose to invest your money could come at a cost. Um, you know, that was it was it was probably more meaningful back then. Whereas today, your money's not going to make much for you anyway. So you might as well do good with it. You know, and I, I wonder how much of an impact that has had on on some people. Um Certainly not everyone. I don't think it's a particularly large influence because there's there's a long list of influences here. I mean, even the Greta Thunberg effect, you know, Greta has been such a, an outspoken, um, charismatic in many ways advocate for climate change and has received so much media attention that it's become increasingly hard for people to ignore. Um, social media has had that effect on on, on so many areas of our lives, including including Me Too and Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, I'm not a huge fan or a big user of social media, and I think it has lots of, of downsides and, and you know detrimental effects on mental health and you know people obsessing over the number of likes and clicks and so on that, that they've um, that they can get. But one of certainly one of the positive effects is spreading the word about inequality, social injustice, climate change, um, and getting a groundswell of support for it and just giving it a much bigger platform and a megaphone to get the message out. And I think that's been really impactful here in influencing investors' behavior and just as importantly, influencing regulatory bodies. I mean, now it's a requirement that pension trustees in the UK, take into consideration ESG factors and how they, how they you know manage and administer pensions, and so now it can't be ignored. It is not an option to to choose to address it. You actually proactively have to address it in your statement of investment principles, um, and that's really made everyone in the industry in the UK and in and in Europe focus their minds on these issues. That's fascinating, and I'm, it, if it's true, if your if your theory is true, then it's certainly not a noble reason why uh, ESG has become more top of mind. But here we are, and um, and we're better off for it. Absolutely, um, there is and has been a you know long histories of 
social injustice and inequality present throughout societies all over the world. And it's long overdue that those those issues are addressed. Um, and it's really pleasing to see that um, that there's so much more attention being being given um, to helping to redress some of those in, the, the, those you know those inequalities. Um, the world will be a much better place, a fairer place for it. And um, and as far as the environment is concerned, you know, there, there's quite a few different companies here and individuals who, you know, are kind of rededicating themselves to, I guess, helping people, you know, build retirement savings in a world worth living in is kind of a bit of a catchphrase that I've seen a number of people here in the UK adopting. Um, it's one thing to to have a nice pot of money to retire on, but if if it's retiring into a world that is that is dying, that is flooding, then then what's it all for? And I think it's wonderful to to have that vision now, and there to be mechanisms in place where you can invest your money in a way that will make that positive difference to yourself to your family to your community and ultimately to the planet luke dixon thank you so much for for doing this this was truly truly a pleasure the pleasure is all mine david thank you very much that is a wrap on this episode of the 74 and west exclusives podcast if you'd like to learn more about luke dixon or to get in touch with him find him on linkedin just search luke dixon park lane advisors and of course you can find us 74 and west on the web at 74andwest.com. That's 74andwest.com. Thanks so much. See you next time.